Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Good Judgment Judgment Podcast. Podcast. Hello, folks. Welcome to another edition of the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. And today we're going to address an issue that has come to us through one of our listeners. That's right. Remember, you too can play an active role in helping us select topics for our episodes. Tane, remind our listeners how they can reach out to us. Absolutely. So for your topic suggestions and your glowing reviews, you can reach out to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. And you can also find our website at goodjudgepod.com. That's where you can find things like our episode notes that we we try to put there for all of our episodes to help you avoid having a wreck while you're trying to write things down as you are listening to our episodes in your car um, and or on the treadmill or, you know, we don't want that horrible treadmill accident right in the front of the gym. Um, Um, or whatever other calamities we might cause because of our incredibly intriguing programming. That's right, Tane. Today we're going to discuss TPOs, protective orders, temporary and permanent protective orders. Now, this topic is probably going to involve more than one episode. Okay, well, Wade, before we get started, I have a little bit of a confession to make on this topic. In my career, I have not presided over many TPO actions. In fact... I've never done a TPO, Wade. Um, We have senior judges who are usually kind enough to hear those for us in Cobb County. So I'm going to be asking a lot of questions today and offering a deep thought here and there and letting you carry the ball on this one. Okay, Tane, that's fine. I'm going to try to steer the ship. Ahoy, land. (laughs) All right. All right. So currently... We frequently hear two types of TPO actions, family violence and stalking protective order actions. And and I'm going to use some version of that throughout this presentation. TPO actions, and Tane, we have talked about this. They're not based in common law. When something's not based in common law, what happens with the statutory construction? It's uh, strictly construed. Very good, Tane. I know, right? And hey, are these... Are these civil or criminal, Wade? Well, that's the biggest point. These are civil actions. Therefore, generally, you're going to follow civil procedure. However, the Civil Practice Act does not apply to these cases. And there's a case called Carroll. And we're not going to read all these citations, Tane. But this, this episode is chock full of citations should you need any confusing so the civil practice act excuse me a civil case what's the standard the 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 the, the evidentiary preponderance wade there you go <laughs> i'm just trying to help you there wade. i was trying to i was trying to engage you tane god <laughs> thank you man it's a preponderance standard wade all the actions that we're going to discuss in this episode require a verified petition and we will see why that's important in a moment um Tane, just like in all cases, credibility determinations, that's up to the judge, right? Sure, always. And in all of these cases, well, I guess most of the the case law involving both family violence protective orders and stalking protective orders, the, the mechanics of how you handle those cases can be found within the statutes involving family violence protective orders. That's because the, sta- the stalking protective order statutes – 16590 at sec. Isn't that how you're supposed to say that? At sec? Yes, at sec. Specifically provide that issues such as jurisdiction, pleading, etc., in a stalking case shall be governed by the provisions of the Family Violence Protective Order Statute, which is 
And if you want an example where it says that in the stalking statute, just look at 16.594 B and E. So, Tane, while stalking actions and family violence actions deal with different bad acts, the process and procedure are basically the same, right? Yeah, yeah. And and you've taught me something over the years that I think is really going to be really important for our listeners to understand. And that is you can't get a TPO against another party just because that person is a jerk. Mm, that's just another incredibly eloquent wisdom. way of saying and reiterating that strict compliance with those statutes is required. Right, Tang? That's right. So in the family violence context, just like the statute implies, in which people actually still tame, fail to understand, there has to be two major things shown. The parties qualify as family, and an act of family violence has been alleged, at least, in the petition. I can't tell you how many family violence petitions I get where the mother, the other mother of my, my child's father hit me at the club. Right. And they want a family violence protective order. New girlfriend wants to uh, get a protective order against old girlfriend or boyfriend. Or whatever you're into. Not that there's anything wrong with any of it, to quote Seinfeld. Yeah. So they're going to be all kind of issues like venue, service, et cetera, Tane. But these two requirements are pretty basic. And it it sort of starts the the basic um, description. Now, Tane... Just real quick, run through who is family in that first part of 1913-1. Sure. So uh, 1913-1 says, as used in this article, the term family violence means the occurrence of one or more of the following acts between, and this is the enumeration, past or present spouses, persons who are parents of the same child, parents and children, step-parents and step-children, foster parents and foster children or other persons living or formerly living in the same household. And those acts that they're talking about is A, any felony, or B, commission of the offenses of battery, simple battery, simple assault, assault, stalking, criminal damage to property, unlawful restraint, or criminal trespass. In other words, it's not everything. It's a lot, but it's not everything. They put that criminal damage to property in there because of key in somebody's car. Probably. Or, or throwing the, the cell phone against the wall or whatever. Or they're pulling the TV down. Yeah. Now, there's always that exception about reasonable discipline, but I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on that because that comes up. Now, Tane, how long has it been since you've lived in the same house with your sister? Gosh, 28 years. You'll tell the folks because... Would that prevent her from getting a TPO against you? There might be other things like you didn't commit any act, commit any acts of violence, but right. would that prevent her the fact that y'all hadn't lived together in a really, really long time? No, we've cited a case in there that says even where the parties had not lived in the same household for over twenty years, if they ever resided in the same household, the court has jurisdiction to hear the case. Yep, and that's the Jones v. Spurl case. And let's again, again, we're not going to read all these cases. There is a ton of citations in this outline. So, let, Tane, let's talk that's about Wade. Jo- that's because Wade wrote the outline. <laughs> if you look at my outlines, there's no citations to authority in them. Tane, let's talk about jurisdiction and venue now. 
we have talked about this in the in the context of civil cases. And let me give you a pop quiz. You ready? Uh oh. Can you waive jurisdiction? No. Can you waive venue? Yes. There you go. Look at you. See, I got a hundred. I got a hundred. You see how much you know about TPA? I got a hundy. Now, this is going to be a little confusing because it's going to sound at times like venue, but it's really jurisdiction. Actually, the statute, 1913-2, is entitled jurisdiction. So, Tane, under jurisdiction, it says two things. If a respondent is a Georgia resident, the superior court in the county where the defendant resides has jurisdiction. If the respondent is a non-resident of Georgia, the superior court where the petitioner petitioner resides or Superior Court where the act of family violence allegedly occurred has jurisdiction. Now, Tane, we've talked about the Civil Practice Act doesn't apply. You and I love contradictions in the law and how things don't <laughs> seem to jive, right? Right. So tell the folks about that final sentence of 1913-2B. Sure. Uh, that sentence provides that jurisdiction can lie where an act of family violence allegedly occurred, quote, where the act involving family violence meets the elements for personal jurisdiction provided for under paragraph two or three of code section 19-10-91. Say that again. Say the number again. I'm sorry, 9-10-91, which is the Georgia long-arm statute. So we've added another layer of potential venues and and and. Subject. I'm sorry, personal jurisdiction uh, venues. I shouldn't say the word venue. Personal jurisdiction places that the action can be brought. So in other words, right. you remember, Tane, that you, you've done a civil case or nine. Um, <laughs> you generally, defendant gets home field advantage. You, you sue a defendant where the defendant resides. Right. Criminal cases, we usually bring where they happen, Right. Right. Well, that's the big difference, and one of the big reasons why you need to keep in mind this is a civil case. It may sound criminal. There may be the the testimony about what happened on Thursday may sound criminal. This is a civil case. Right. So if the respondent is alleged to have stalked the petitioner, taint by phone, email, social media, all that stuff you love, where did those crimes occur? And I'm putting that in sort of air quotes for the people. Right. So the answer to that depends on whether you're considering a criminal case involving stalking or a stalking protective order case, which is a civil case. So there's a difference between that. So there, we've cited a number of uh, statutes and cases here, but for example, uh, in Huggins versus Boyd, which is a 2010 case, it decided that communications occur where they are sent, not where they are received. But OCGA section 16-5-94A1 specifically provides the exact opposite. We love that to be applicable in stalking criminal cases, which Every means time that a the statute decided an angel gets his wings. Sorry. Oh, I feel that's okay. I feel good about that. Um, it's it specifically provides the that um, in criminal in stalking criminal cases, contact is deemed to occur where the communication is received. So it's the exact opposite in a criminal case. So right. the stalking protective order cases all refer to the Long Arm Act. We talked about that, 91091, as the basis for jurisdiction over a non-resident. So they say that you can't bring a stalking TPO against a non-resident 
because the communication happened in Tennessee where they live. Sorry to shout out Tennessee, but the that happened where they were sent it, not where it was received, but an exact mm-hmm. opposite result if you have a criminal prosecution. Right. So, Tane, um, we talk about venues sometimes. We talk about these home field advantages. We've talked about jurisdiction and how it cannot be waived, but venue can be waived. And you know, Tane, that's applicable in these kind of cases. And we actually give you a site in case you ever need it to put it in your notebook of stuff I need to find sometimes, but not every day. Yeah, that's right. So, and uh, go ahead. No, go ahead. It, 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 let's just be clear. If you have jurisdiction, venue can be waived expressly or through implication, like, i.e., I don't know, you didn't say anything, you didn't object, but you can't waive jurisdiction. You know, we've talked about Tame, why we don't send divorce cases to magistrate court, right? That's right. They don't have jurisdiction, they cannot hear those cases. Remember, when you are deciding where a person resides, there is a difference in Tane. You've talked about this probably a hundred times in divorce cases and civil cases where a person stays. They might stay in several different places. I think they call They talk about domicile as opposed to residence, right? Where you stay and where you live. Those are could very well be different places, right? That's right. It has to do a lot with the uh, intent of the parties as to whether it's a temporary place of residence or whether it's uh, more permanent. It may be a, a a sort of a permanent temporary in that, yeah, well, this is the only place I've got to go and this is the place I intend to stay as long as I stay until I get kicked out. Or this is the place <laughs> I intend to stay now that I've been sued. Right. Um, <laughs> intent to remain is really, you're right, it's the big point. Did the person intend, did they move with an intent to remain at that new location? If so, venue probably lies wherever they now reside. Otherwise, it could be potentially found to exist, or if it's not established on the record where they live, it could be found to exist in either county. And there's a case site on that if you ever have a venue problem in a TPO. But Tane, can the judge just sua sponte reverse a, or excuse me, dismiss a, uh, TPO action for lack of venue? No way. That would be improper. Um, and there's a, a case citation that's under the Davis Redding versus Redding case, and that's cited in our materials. Folks, we'll be right back after this pause for station identification. Folks, this is Wade and Tane. You're listening to the Good Judgment podcast on the World Wide Web or wherever else you listen to these things. As always, you can find outlines for these podcast episodes as well as any supplemental materials on our website, which is goodjudgepod.com. We'd love to have your feedback about the podcast, and we get that at our email, goodjudgepod at gmail.com. We're always looking for suggested podcast topics. Please feel free to submit your suggestions to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Operators are standing by. And remember, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to like us and follow us on your favorite podcast platform and tell your friends it's how we get to grow our listenership thanks and now back to our studio audience so let's talk about ex parte orders um wait a, wait a minute wait wait a minute wait 
ex parte orders without the other party because you know we've got some rules that say we can't have ex parte communications right right yeah we don't do that that's why i mean i don't know many rules but i know that one well that's one of the very specific things about tpos and and tame we've talked about this before there are only two or three things that really keep judges up at night sort of universally yes making a custody decision Mm -hmm. making a bond decision something happening while the person's on bond Mm-hmm. I would submit to you the sort of the third thing would be denying or I guess denying a TPO and something happening. Yeah, really, really spicy burritos usually keep me up too. That would be the last one I would add to that. <laughs> I, you know, it's so hard to be serious <laughs> with you sometimes. I, I appreciate that. I really do appreciate that. Tane, lately, um, unfortunately, we've had sort of a bad run, and we have seen a number of people, especially during the pandemic, trying to get a leg up in their custody or divorce litigation Yes, by obtaining a or attempt to obtain a protective order that's not warranted. And that has become an increasingly concerning problem because as we've said multiple times, at no point during our new judge training do we give anybody a wand or a magic ball or ability to see the future. And we don't know that until we hear it. But then we find out, oh, wait a minute, this protective order really was just all designed to get somebody out of the house. Yeah, I heard from a judge in a different jurisdiction, another state, that in their state, these kinds of orders were being used frequently during the time that there was a ban on evictions. Um, these kinds of orders were being used to get people out of the house rather than having to go through the eviction eviction process. So uh, that, that apparently was not something that was unique to us. Tane, I've taken an incredibly informal poll that is not scientifically reliable in any manner and of other, several other judges seriously concerning whether they receive face-to-face sworn testimony from petitioners when deciding whether to grant an ex parte action or not, whether they rely upon what's written in the the petition. The results, honestly, are really mixed. Some judges do, and others do not require the petitioner to be sworn in front of the judge and, and let the judge sort of ask some, some penetrating questions to figure out if this is one of those cases where there's an attempt to obtain a strategic advantage or not. So, Tane, let's talk a little bit. This is something that's – I don't care how many TPOs you've done. You're, you're familiar with this. Without commenting on the propriety or efficiency or efficacy of that process, the statute, 1913.3, specifically authorizes that ex parte order upon filing of a verified petition in which the evidence supports the issuance of the order. So, Tane – what is a verified petition and, and why do we care if it's verified or not? Sure. I mean, it's it, just like in a divorce uh, action that's filed. It's it's an action that has a sworn statement attached to it as to the veracity of the, uh, the truthfulness of the statements that are made in the petition. And the reason that's important is, uh, again, if you're going to grant relief based upon a one-sided document, something that comes in to be considered by you, you at least want the person to have to been placed under oath when they made the statements that are included in that document. And you know, that's what allows you to not have the person come testify if you don't. You have sworn testimony because, Tane, we've talked about that a verified petition is evidence. It is both right. a pleading 
and it is evidence. And we've got a case site in the outline, a couple of case sites in the outline in case that ever becomes relevant to you. But Tane, there's another issue here too, and that's sort of notice pleading. Tane, if you if you had somebody come to you and and write on the petition, I want a TPO because my husband is a jerk. And then he that person comes into your office and under oath gives you testimony about on Thursday he struck me with a pole and on Friday he pulled a gun and you know whatever. That's not in the petition. The person can't respond to that. They don't know what you said. Right. And so just understand that one of the reasons, and this has been my policy for a while, if you are going way all, you're telling me a very different story in person back when we were doing this, where we were receiving a lot of in-person testimony. If you're telling me a very different story than what's in your petition, I'm going to require you to amend your petition. Because I think the defendant has the right to know what you're alleging. Do you think that's crazy? No, I think that I think that comports with um, at least the very basics of notice pleading, like you said, because parties have a right to know what allegations they're supposed to be confronting, especially in a situation where they're being, you know, kicked out of the house, you know, told they can't see their kids, told they can't, you know, do do certain things or activities. Um, that's only fair and reasonable. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because judge, judges that I've spoken with seem kind of torn whether they order child support, spousal support, visitation, et cetera, as part of an ex parte order or not. If you're conducting, you, you, you must conduct a hearing taint in these actions within 30 days. Right. So it's entirely possible that if you go to the effort to make all those orders, there's not even going to be a payment due before the, the, the hearing in the case. And of course, neither neither party has filed a domestic relations financial affidavit. So if you're setting child support, you're just setting it on a guess, I guess. Uh, yeah, exactly. And uh, that can be dangerous too. Now, Tane, this is going to be controversial, and I don't know I don't know how to sort of. Um, I guess I could do that. <laughs> to let everybody this to know, this is going to be controversial. Yeah. Some judges choose to insert language into the ex parte order that requires all firearms to be turned over to law enforcement officials. Now, let's let's go that let's attack this issue sort of one at a time. First, law enforcement is now charged with keeping those firearms safe and undamaged, somehow categorizing basically cataloging, cataloging them. There's the okay. word I was looking for. Without yeah. having a case number or a event or a whatever to tie these guns to. Second, I think it is somewhat delusional to think that a real determined individual cannot find an alternative source for a gun somewhere, quote unquote, off the street. Um, it, anyway, third, and this is the most important, there's not any statutory authority to do this. Remember now, Tane, we talked about that these must be strictly construed because it's not a part of common law, right? Right. Well, I there is some law, some language that says the court may order such ex, uh, temporary ex parte relief as it deems necessary to protect the petitioner or minor child of the household from violence. That that would be sufficient. The only problem is there is there is case law, including State v. Burgess, and then the, you're going to hear a lot more case law as we go through the day that specifically say, including very recent case law, that's not among the listed 
things you have the authority to do, Judge. You can't do that. Well, and, and think about this, too. I mean, you are actually dealing with a, a constitutional issue there with respect to the ownership and, and, and ability to bear, you know, have the guns with you. Mm-hmm. So it seems like there might ought to have to be a little bit more, uh, at least some sort of authority that's pretty specific in order for you to be able to do that. But we're just throwing it out there so you all know that this is a provision that's kind of it's frequently used, but it's not one that's necessarily statutorily authorized. So if you look at 1913.4, it lists the specific authority of the judge to, to when issuing an, an ex parte or final protection order and surrendering firearms or any personal properties, really not, not on that list. The, the, we've cited some cases where the, the act of going and seizing the weapons, of course, Tain, it comes across methamphetamine on the counter. You know, you know how that <laughs> right. goes. I do know how that goes. And then um, the Court of Appeals noted that then in a, I guess, end note to that case, that there's no language in that statute that allows you to to have law enforcement conduct a search for firearms or anything else. That would require right. a search warrant. And so right. I want you to consider, Tane, and then the folks to consider a case called Rawcliffe versus Rawcliffe, a 2007 case where the Court of Appeals ruled that the trial judge did not have the authority to prohibit the respondent from possessing a firearm as a part of the decision in a stalking TPO case. And then they cited that that State v. Burgess that basically said that a TPO is not the functional equivalent sorry, of a search warrant, so the resulting search was thrown out, where, of course, they found meth on the counter. And that's that's just not something you have the authority to do. I understand the motivation. The motivation's not misplaced. It is just simply, I think, not only short-sighted, it may not comport with due process. Yeah. So so explain let's talk about let's talk about time. Let's talk about when You mean like when Culture these... Club? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, sorry, you mean you don't mean like time in the in the abstract. You mean like no. time as it relates to family violence petitions? Right, and I, I immediately went to Pink Floyd, and you went to Culture Club, so which really says a lot about our differences about both of us. Yeah. So, so we've anyway. established that the the traditional time limitations imposed in all other civil cases under the Civil Practice Act don't apply here, and, and simply, I mean, let's just be honest, they can't. It just makes sense because right. we have to have a final hearing within thirty days. It just can't. But you apply. know what we you know what we do agree on? What you and me. What? Morris Day and the time. Morris Day and anyway, the time. Go ahead. I, I, interrupted, I interrupted your uh, jungle. I interrupted your thought. All right. I want to shout out to Judge Jesse Stone for teaching oh, me Jesse. something new about this um, relative the times associated with that are the time rules that are associated uniquely to protective order cases. You can issue an ex parte protective order. We're going to talk about how you might go about doing that in a minute. But within 10 days of filing the petition, not the date the ex parte order is issued, but no more than 30 days. So somewhere between 10 and 30 days, a hearing must be conducted where the respondent can appear and the petitioner must prove the allegations by a preponderance of the evidence. We're good on preponderance. But here's the thing. If that hearing is not conducted Within 30 days of filing the petition, the case stands dismissed. It doesn't matter what you say, Judge. 
Now, and how many of your cases end up getting dismissed at that 30 days because nobody shows up? Most of it. At least half of them. Yeah. Um, if that hearing is is not held within 30 days, the petition's dismissed. But, Tane, there's one specific exception, and it's the exception we always use, unless the parties agree otherwise, right? Yes. So there is one other, I guess, exception. If you make a finding that the other party is avoiding service or evading service, you mm-hmm. can – you do have one additional 30-day window to try to get service accomplished. But you also need to know that you need to make that finding within the 30-day period. Exactly. So, <laughs> so don't wait Don't wait till 60 days and then go, oh, he was evading service. We're just going to have the hearing anyway. Yeah, or find it after the fact, yeah. So, Tane, we have these pre-printed forms and that you can get off the clerk's website, the clerk's cooperative authority website. We've got that in our outline. But one of those is a continuance order. So without doing any research and doing just what I thought we always had done, that I had just been granting a continuance beyond the 30-day window because I couldn't have a hearing within 30 days because of this, that, and the other. And then that's... That's just simply wrong. Granting that continuance order only allows you to continue it within that 30-day window. Right. I mean, it's just – and thanks to Judge Stone for helping me reread that statute and relearn that information. And there's well, a and bunch of cases. Well, if you think about it, that, that 10 to 30-day time window makes a whole lot of sense because 10 days is usually the demarcation for appropriate notice for somebody to have to show up at a hearing. And then 30 days makes sense because – if you're taking ex parte action, just like in a temporary restraining order or several other things that exist under the law, that generally is only for a short duration. The 30 days is usually the outside window for which you should take any action without both parties being present. So Absolutely. It, 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 that time period makes sense. Hello, hello. This is producer Steven here. These guys are running a little bit long, so this episode is going to be broken up. Well, folks, that's all we have for another exciting and enthralling topic here on the Good Judgment Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This project was the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to the entire University of Georgia College of Law for assisting in our recording. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness. But nobody can get it all. Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia. Thanks to our NJO graduates who've been willing to help with this podcast series. You know that these are our opinions and they do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, the University of Georgia College of Law, or anybody else for that matter. You can contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise, but please contact someone else with any complaints. But seriously, we would love to have your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. You've been doing a great job doing that, and we really appreciate the help. You can also visit our website at goodjudgepod.com for outlines and more details about our podcasts. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Men Podcast.